I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to John, John chapter 20. I read earlier in our service the account that John gives of the empty tomb, and certainly the resurrection of Jesus is something that is fully known to all who believe. We confess it with our lips, we believe it in our hearts, we declare it in our message, we celebrate it at Easter, we're reminded of it each and every Lord's Day, we sing of it in our hymns. And when something becomes so very well known, so much a part of our spiritual DNA, we're prone, if not to take it for granted, at least to lose something of the thrill, amazement, surprise, unexpected joy, the wonder, the marvel that met the eyes of those disciples of Jesus who experienced first his death. And without knowing the outcome, then experiencing the reality of his resurrection. We know the outcome. We know the end of the story. But you know, we can still read of it, read it, we can still think about it, we can still have something of a perspective of what they saw, what they experienced that resurrection morning. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to center our thoughts upon the three figures that come before us in the narrative. The first ten verses presents us with Mary Magdalene, or Mary from Magdala. That's probably the place that she was from. And hence, she was Mary of Magdala, called Magdalene. Simon Peter. And then the other disciple, also called the one whom Jesus loved, and whom we know to be John, the Gospel writer. Now Mary's story not only is in the first ten verses, but she's the figure that is prominent in the next paragraph as well. And then Peter and John, they also reemerge in the upper room appearances when Jesus met with them. Um, but for this morning, we want just to observe the scene at the tomb. In fact, you might even think of it in terms of the tomb being the fourth figure. In fact, it's the tomb that's mentioned again and again and again in the first ten verses. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb in verse 1. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, she says in verse 2. And she uses the term we. Um, yeah, she says, they, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So in any case, there were other women that were there, as the other Gospels tell us. Mary was not alone, but she's the figure that Jesus highlights. We read that Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. And we read that the other disciple uh, outran Peter's and reached the tomb first. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And then the other disciple who had reached the 
to first also went in. And uh, so all these mentions of the mention of the tomb, all three make their appearance at the tomb. They come to the tomb at different times and, and different things were told about them. And, and I want to view these three and what I believe to be the prominent qualities or graces that characterize each of them and their actions. And so I'll just put it all on the table for you. I want us to look at Mary's love, Peter's hope, and John's faith. These three graces, they're called the theological graces by early church writers. And we find them put together frequently in the New Testament. In Paul's letters, he can speak of the works of faith, patience of hope, labors of love. Uh, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. He says at the end of the chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest of which is love. And so this triad of graces, faith, hope, and love, I believe are evident in the, these ones who came to the tomb. I think they all shared all of these graces, but the ones that are prominent, his love seems to be preeminent in Mary, hope in Peter, and faith in John. And I'm going to tell you why as we move along in our studies this morning. First of all, we want to look at Mary's love. Now, the fact that Mary loved Jesus, no doubt derives from the greatness of the love and the grace that Jesus bestowed upon her. We read about Mary Magdalene in the 8th chapter of John's Gospel. And she's among a group of women who did something extraordinary, extraordinary in the first century. Apparently, she is one who left home, who left whatever it was that she was doing in terms of family, probably not children, probably she, she had children, she had raised them, if not, she was a single woman. But um, she, along with these other women, were called uh, uh, Joanna, uh, is one of them in verse 3, the wife of Husa. Herod's household manager, Susanna. And then we read many others. And they were among those who followed Jesus from place to place, from town to town. And John tells us they provided for them out of their means. But when we read about Mary in chapter 8 being among these women, what's notable about Mary is what Luke tells us in the words of verse 3 about Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Seven demons she possessed, or possessed her. I wonder what it must have been like. I have no idea really what life would have been like to be possessed by seven demons. What harm was brought to her or others by the fact that seven demons possessed her and what liberation what joy what freedom she would have experienced by the fact that it was Jesus who expelled those demons cast out those demons and liberated her love would have been something of the principal graces that would have informed her relationship to our Lord Jesus. And the fact that Mary and these others, some of whom were also told had been 
healed of evil spirits and infirmities in verse 2, is told to us right on the tail of what is told to us in chapter 7. When in the words of verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, this man called Simon, Simon the Pharisee. And as Jesus was in this home, there was a woman of the city, in verse 37, who was said to be a sinner. She learned that he, that is Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, and she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And she stood behind Jesus, again, he's reclining at meal, feet out upon a couch, and she goes behind him, and she's weeping. And she begins to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Then we read that the Pharisee who had invited him, when he saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And then Jesus tells a story to Simon um, concerning those who have debts, large and small. And when people are forgiven a large debt, a debt you'll never be able to repay in all of your life, and um, you're forgiven that debt, and someone else has a debt of about 17 cents, and someone says, hey, no big deal, keep the 17 cents. You know, I think I got a, a meal that was uh, three fifty-five at McDonald's the other day, and I had three sixty in my hand, and I'm sitting there like a dummy waiting for the nickel. And the woman said to me, "She says you want your change?" I said, "Forget it, no, no big deal. I'm a Rockefeller, right? A great, great, great liberality. <laughs> Keep the five cents." Well, that's the sort of thing Jesus is saying. Somebody who's just forgiven five cents, I mean, what's the big deal? But somebody that's, considered, that's, for, uh, that's forgiven a fortune that you'd never be able to repay, now that's something that's notable. And of course, Simon says, it's the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Who's going to love him the more? And Jesus says, you've judged rightly. And he turned to the woman. He says, I entered your house, you came into water. <laughs> For my feet, she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. From the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves much. But he was forgiven, little loves little. The forgiveness of sins is not a great deal to you, it's not a big deal. It's like a nickel. So what? You're not going to love God. You're not going to love Christ. You're not going to live in daily appreciation and praise and joy and thankfulness and love to the God who loved you and liberated you from your sins. When you're forgiven much, you love much. When you're the beneficiary of the liberating power of the Son of God who frees you from being dominated and possessed and exploited by evil spirits you're going to love him and no service will be too great to give to him apparently these women were well off women they had women of means they provided for them they provided for the disciples out of their means they had it to give and they gave they wanted to give because they wanted to express their love it's an interesting thing about this matter of the things you see people do in the gospel it's for Jesus 
And it's not said at every point, in love they did this, and in love that they did that, and in love they did something different. But I think you have examples of that love clearly manifested. It's not just, I mean, it's not, I shouldn't say not just, it's an amazing thing that Jesus would love sinners, that he would receive sinners, that he would forgive sinners. This man received sinners. Amazing. But it's also true that those who receive the benefits of his grace and salvation love him reciprocally. We love because he first loved us. You see the woman who anointed Jesus' body before the burial, Mary of Bethany. Stories told to us in Luke chapter, uh, well each, each of the Gospels I think tell their version of it. It's in chapter 12 in John's Gospel. But one of the Gospels says when the people were criticizing Mary for taking expensive ointment and liberally placing it upon Jesus' body just with lavish love that she's expressing. Jesus has done criticize her. She's done what she could. What would we not do for the Son of God? But yet you are to do what you can. Not everyone can leave family and follow Jesus from town to town. Not everyone can go to foreign nations to be a missionary or go into the inner city and plant a church. But where you are, with what you're given, you serve. You express the love that you have to Christ because He first loved you. Mary Magdalene is expressing that love. She's with Jesus throughout His ministry. She's there at his death when others fled. She's one of the women at the cross. She's there at his burial when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus lay his body in the tomb. She's there with the other women at the tomb. And then as the Sabbath ends when Jesus' body is in the tomb she ventures out of her home early. Maybe she couldn't sleep. Still dark. But she's going to the tomb. She's in the company of other women. But love compels her to do what she can do. To be at the tomb. To make certain that the body of Jesus is cared for. In the love she tends to the dead. Celebrating the reality of his life. No hope of a resurrection, no expectation of a resurrection, simply an expression of love. She comes to the tomb and she sees the stone has been taken away. The grave has been disturbed. The grave of her Lord. Where have they laid my Lord? She runs to the disciples. She tells Peter and John, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. We see her back at the tomb in verse 11 of chapter 20. And she's weeping. She sees the angels. And they say, why are you weeping? Her response is, they've taken away my Lord. He's still my Lord. The Lord I love. The Lord who liberated me. The Lord who blessed me. The Lord who did so much for me. They've taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Spurgeon will quote that and say that's true of most churches today. 
They've taken away my Lord. They're not preaching Him. They're not preaching His gospel. You can spiritualize the text, I imagine, in that way. But the reality was that Mary loved Jesus. And she was concerned that even His remains would be properly disposed of, properly cared for. She acts in love. She tells the one she thinks is the gardener to tell her, where have you laid him? I will take him away. I'll come and retrieve his body if I just knew where you had taken him. We read this morning in the Sunday school class from Romans 8. We're, We're encouraged and we rejoice that not even death can separate us from the love of of Christ. But for Mary, not even death could separate her or separate Jesus from her love. She loved him still. She's come to break through the barriers of social norms to serve him it wouldn't have been the proper thing for a woman to go from town to town with a group of men male disciples and yet she joined a group of women that did that very thing it wouldn't be the proper thing for the woman to be the one who would go to a group of men and give witness to something she had seen women's witnesses meant little in courts of the ancient times and yet Mary love brings her to bold action to bold requests to do many things that maybe would have been considered in the ancient world not quite ladylike and yet she's determined in love for her Lord to express that love in whatever way she could like Joseph like Nicodemus like Mary of Bethany she has done what she could so I think it's love that motivates Mary that activates Mary that brings her to do the things that she does and as we turn to Peter I think the leading notion of hope is perhaps proper to think of hope is that which brings Peter to act in the ways that he acts in this passage again the last time we saw Peter what was he doing well he was denying Jesus he was outside the high priest's house in the courtyard and he denied that he knew him in the midst of curses and oaths. Now we read that he, the cock crowed and he went out and wept bitterly. If there was a person amongst the followers of Jesus for whom the crucifixion was absolutely crushing, it was Peter. Remember, it was Peter who said, I will go to prison and die for you. And he meant it. It wasn't a boast that he wasn't prepared to keep. The only reason they didn't go to prison and death was that Jesus willingly surrendered. The last thing Peter expected was Jesus to surrender. Here's the guy that took the sword and lopped off the ear of the high priest. A lot of times you think of Peter as cowardly. He wasn't cowardly, folks. He was poised to fight. He was going to be a warrior for the kingdom of God. He was going to make Jerusalem great again. And he was going to go out there and boldly achieve the victory. A religious zealot is what he was. 
But Jesus surrendered. He healed the ear of the high priest. He says to Pilate, my kingdom is not from this world or else my servants would fight. My servants won't fight because my kingdom does not come from this world. But Peter was a man whose hopes were dashed. Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus said, we had hoped it was he who would redeem Israel. Now Peter's hope was dashed. I wonder what he's, how he spent Saturday. I wonder how he spent that Sabbath day. I wonder if he read the Psalms and prayed the Psalms. That would have been a good thing to do. There are Psalms that probably depicted Peter's heart and experience. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my salvation and my God. How would Peter come to the place of yet praising him in the midst of the devastation he was feeling? The distress and the spiral of depression that he was plunging himself into. What would break the grip of a spiraling depression? What light could be found in the face of the impenetrable darkness of the things that had transpired? Probably he wasn't filled with a whole lot of hope that something would change the equation. But then Mary of Magdalene, she comes, bursts in with a report. The grave has been disturbed. The tomb has been opened. The body's gone. What? What? Think of Peter kind of wiping the sleep out of his eyes, wiping the tears out of his out of his eyes, wiping away the distress from his heart, rising himself up to head out to the tomb with John. I don't think they walked out of the house and started running right away. They probably were talking and thinking. What are they saying to one another, I wonder? Perhaps they recalled how he would speak to them often in the Gospels. He spoke about going up to Jerusalem. They did. He spoke about being betrayed. He was. He spoke about being put into the hands of men. It happened. He spoke about being crucified, it occurred. But was that all he said? Didn't he say more? What was that stuff about the third day? Did he actually say he would arise? Or perhaps at first was a leisurely pace to a cemetery. Who runs to cemeteries? The dead will stay there. They're not in a hurry to go anywhere. But yet didn't he say something about being raised from the dead? And suddenly the pace begins to quicken. They start to run. 
At first they're running together, and then it begins a race. Who'd get there first? I'd suggest that's how hope works. You run towards your hopes. And you run towards your hopes with increasing zeal, with increasing certainty of those hopes. When you're hopeless, you don't do anything. You just sit back and pity yourself. You get involved in, in inward distress and despair and depression. And Peter was enmeshed in that, I'm sure. Now John won the foot race. He got to the tomb first. But Peter came and he wasn't about just to linger outside looking in. He goes right in. Right in. He sees the linen cloths. And John saw those linen cloths too. But he sees something more. He sees the face covering folded up and put into a place by itself. You know, first of all, grave robbers don't leave the grave clothes behind. And they certainly don't fold things up. I think Peter realized his hopes had been realized. His hopes that Jesus, in fact, did what he said he would do. That he was raised from the dead. I think he's come to realize his hopes, in fact, have been realized. And all these psalms about hope in God. For I will yet praise him. We're not something spoken in vain. That the people of God can live in hopes that will not be disappointed. So Mary excels in love. I think Peter is demonstrating hope in John. Well, we don't have to guess at John. The passage tells us it says he also went in and he saw and he believed. He believed. Now, I know verse 9 says that for as yet they didn't, uh, did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now that would come later. Remember that was in the post-resurrection appearances when Jesus had Bible studies with the disciples. He showed them from the prophets, the Psalms, and the law, the things concerning himself. That's the post-resurrection appearances. They come to know what the scripture said. So I don't think that John or Peter or anyone else made the connection with the scriptures just yet. But I think what they did connect with was the word of Jesus. I think it's the word of Jesus they believed. I think the reality that the tomb was opened. The body was not there. There was an empty tomb. Brought these men to call to mind the words of Jesus. And to believe that what he said and promised, he actually did perform. These theological graces of faith, hope, and love really you can't separate them you can't say well just one person has love but faith and hope don't really belong to them I think they all shared those things I think we just see emphases that we see in many people of God Uh, there are those who just seem to abound in one more than the other 
There are strong believers who unquestionably embrace every word, sometimes even words they don't understand and misinterpret, yet they believe it, because they are strong in faith, standing on the promises. And it's all well and good. We need those people in the church. Strongly rooted and grounded in the word of God. Strong believers. And we need hopeful believers. Because a lot of us get tired and weary. And we need the encouragement of people whose hearts and minds abound in the hope of the gospel, but live in expectation. When we studied Anna of the tribe of Asher, who was among those waiting for the redemption of Israel, she met with them and talked to them. You need people like Anna, looking to the promises, hoping in the promises, celebrating the promises, encouraging others in the light of the promises. And folks, we need a people that abound in love. There's not too much compassion in the world. There's an absence of compassion in many places. We live in a world that abounds in cruelty, that abounds in self-absorption and self-will. And love is that grace that drives you out of yourself. And is willing to say, well, the convention doesn't say women follow a group of men disciples, but I love him. And I'm following. Love makes you do things you wouldn't ordinarily do because you stop being concerned about what are the ramifications? What are the consequences? Love's not concerned about consequences. Love's concerned about the object you love. If you have some kind of a fear of going on bridges, there are people in the world that fear bridges. You get a sick kid in the back seat who needs to get across that bridge to the hospital emergency room. The parent who loves his kid is just going to forget about that and say, forget the bridge. Full, full speed ahead. Get done what the child who you love needs. Do the thing that it overcomes. That's why perfect love casts out fear. Is what how John puts it. You're not concerned about yourself, how you can be hurt by something. You're concerned about the object that you love. And I fear that so much of the weakness of the church, if we can talk about the church's weakness in the many places we see the church's weakness and some of the only places we feel we've been burned by weaknesses that have been in the church, is a real absence of these theological graces. It's the absence of faith, hope, and love. These very simple things. We think we know all about them. And yet in so many ways, we're just not pursuing them. In so many ways, it's absent. Not totally. But yet we're not seeking to abound in it and grow in it. I think we need to be like Mary's in the love we lavishly display and courageously exercise. Peter's hope that casts off sadness and despair and despondency and says, I need to get to the place where Jesus is and just confirm it for my own soul's sake and for his glory and for the good of others. John's faith, these are cardinal matters in the life of God's people that we all need to grow in. And all of these things, folks, they're not just passive stuff. This is active stuff. These are the things that energize Christian living. 
These are the things that motivate us to do more, not less. To find greater efforts in active participation in the work of God's kingdom and in the work of the service of His church and the good of others. See, love isn't just something that Mary felt in her heart. It drove her out of her house. It drove her into the work that Jesus was doing. It drove her to follow Him. To give of her substance for the concerns of the, of the work. To give of her safety. To go to a place of crucifixion. To go to a place of burial. To go into the presence of hardened fishermen and say, you got to listen to me. Here, here's what I have to say. Love gets us out of ourselves to do what we need to, be, need to do. Hope does the same. It moves us out of ourselves. Faith does the same. Paul can speak again of the, of the labors of love, the works of faith, the endurance of hope. May God give us the grace to be a people that abound in these cardinal graces of Christian living. And the grace is so very much needed in our own lives and in the life of our assembly that the church needs for the sake of its testimony and its witness in the world. Let's emulate Mary's love, Peter's hope, John's faith, with efforts to grow in these graces, to abound in these graces, to learn to do more, and nevertheless, as we grow in the life of the Spirit, the life that we're called to as the people of the living God. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the examples of these characters that run across we run across in the pages of Holy Scripture. We're thankful for the reality of their lives. We're thankful for the examples that they display. We're thankful that the testimony of Scripture informs us of these things, that we might imitate the lives of those who entered into the promises, who through their life displayed faith, displayed love, displayed hope in ways that we know so very little of. And we pray that we would learn more. That, Lord, we would grow in a deeper measure of active love, active hope, active faith to live lives that would show forth the praises of the God who has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. That would show forth the reality of the fact that we've been loved, that we've been given great and precious promises that we've been given a message not only to believe for our own sake, but to proclaim and to declare from the rooftops. We ask you, Lord, to hear our prayers, to bless these, these thoughts this morning, to encourage us in greater measures of these theological graces of Christian life for the glory of your own great name, as well as the good of our own souls and everyone who's, who's affected by the lives we live in this world. So hear our prayers as we come and we ask these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.